Good to see you this evening. One of the, the mystery from our perspective is how human will and, and divine sovereignty work together. How, how does our human desires fit into God being sovereign over everything? Our Bible teaches us clearly that God is absolutely, completely sovereign. There's no doubt about that in, in Scripture. That tells us that God has a plan for his universe, and that plan is all-encompassing. It teaches us that God is also absolutely free in both creating and exercising that plan. We've looked at these characteristics of God in some of our evenings, and we know this is what Scripture clearly lays out. This means that, that God has determined every single thing that, that will happen in this universe by his free will alone. Nothing in this universe has caused God to determine that, that one thing will happen and instead of something else. The only thing that determines it is that he has chosen to ensure that his glory will be maximized. It will be on display in the final analysis as everything transpires, God will be exalted above all. And one of my seminary professors used to say, if a single snowflake could fall to the ground apart from the will of God, we no longer have the God of the Bible. We, we understand these things from Scripture. The God of the Bible has determined every molecule of his universe, every aspect of it. That's what we mean when we talk about divine sovereignty. At, at the same time, we examine ourselves and we know we have real desires. We have things that, that we want. There are things that, that we like and things that we don't like. As you know, I like to go deer hunting. That, that means that I will spend hours in a deer blind, sometimes in the cold, waiting for a deer to walk by. I find that enjoyable. Grace tells me that it sounds like a dreadful way to spend the day. She's wrong, but that's her view of things. She would rather go to the ice rink and, and skate, something that I have no desire whatsoever to do. She and I, we like different things. We, 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 we have different desires, and, and these are real desires. Now, the, the Bible teaches us that our desires will, will fall into the governance of, of God's sovereign will. We'll, we'll never have a desire that causes us to act outside of his sovereign will. If I go hunting or if she goes skating, all of that is encompassed from before the foundation of the world in God's plan. That, that's where our mind sometimes blows up just a little bit, trying to understand how does this work? How does this fit together? And then we add that, that the Bible also teaches, while all of that is true, we are responsible for our actions based on our desires. The, the reality is that, that because of my sin nature, I have sinful desires. Acting on those desires is sin. And I am guilty for that sin. Yet my sin is comprehended in God's sovereign plan. After all, God sent Christ to die because of my sin. It was covered in his plan. I do not avoid the guilt of sin because of God's sovereign plan is comprehensive and includes my sin. It's all still my guilt. And that's where the mystery comes in. How this fits together is a mystery to us. We, we don't quite have it figured out. At least from our perspective, we can't put it all together. 
I'm sure God has no problem harmonizing any of this. In his infinite wisdom, in his infinite mind, all of it works well, and he's revealed to us what we need to understand. Now, I bring all this up because we're going to encounter several biblical examples in the series that we're starting this evening of how desires, good and bad, are there in people, and the individuals will be accountable for what they do, and yet God is working his sovereign plan to accomplish his purposes. I've decided to return to Genesis, as you might be able to guess from the slide on the screen, for the next several months, we'll be back in the book of Genesis. We, we spent uh, almost a year in 2019 and 2020 going through the first chapters, uh, 11 chapters specifically, we went through. Moses recorded those chapters, and, and in those chapters we have a lot of critical aspects of doctrine there that are foundational to the rest of Scripture. So we spent a lot of time going through those 11 chapters. We, we saw things like I was just talking about, that that God is sovereign. We, we saw that he's the all-powerful creator. We, we saw how sin entered creation and, and corrupted it, and, and how God judges sin severely. We also saw how God's mercy moved him to initiate from the beginning a, a plan of redemption that, that involved the chosen line. We, we saw in those first 11 chapters how man is desperately sinful. Lots of things in, in those chapters. In 2021, we came back to Genesis, and we spent some time following the life of Abraham as God took that plan of redemption and and reduced it down to to one man. For no reason other than than God's good mercy, Scripture was clear that God selected one man. One man, Abraham, through whom he would establish several promises with with mankind. We, We saw Abraham do his very best to mess things up time and time again. But each time God stepped in and preserved his promises. Eventually, when from a a human perspective, it was physically impossible, God gave Abraham a son, Isaac. Isaac then would be the one through whom the promises that that God made to Abraham would would pass on to the next generation. One thing that, that we observed in both of the series that we've done in Genesis is that Moses wrote this record. Moses wrote the, the book of Genesis along with the next four books of the Bible for a particular audience. He wrote these books for the people of Israel. When, when he wrote this book, the Israelites, you may recall, were not even really a fledgling nation uh, properly. They, they had just been pulled out of Egypt by God. God had miraculously broken the bonds of slavery and pulled them out of Egypt freed them from, from that, and, and they're heading toward the, the promised land that he's given them. But to call them nation is probably a little premature. Yet at the time of writing, they're, they're probably more like this large mob that, that's wandering in the wilderness, slowly making their way from Egypt to the promised land. And Moses wrote this book in particular and answered questions like, where did we come from? How did we get here? Who are we as a people? And so forth. Genesis really gives Israel the backstory to what's happening in their life and how God is moving to accomplish his purpose. Tonight I decided we'd pick up where we left off in 2021, right in the middle of chapter 25. 
We, we dropped off right in the middle of the chapter, and we're picking up right in the middle again. If you remember, if you were part of those studies, you, you might recall that Genesis, as, as a book, is divided into several sections. Uh, they're, they're divided by this formula that we find. We have it translated in the New American Standard most of the time as, now these are the records of the generation of fill-in-the-blank, and then some information is given. They're, they're toledotes is the Hebrew word that, that I introduced you to. These, these sections that are... That, that were this translated, the generations of. This formula we saw last in verse 12 of, of chapter 25, where we're given the line of Ishmael. That's Abraham's non-chosen son. His, his son by Sarah's maid, Hagar. And, and his line is briefly recorded. In, in Genesis, Moses frequently will give the, the, the lineage for a, the non-chosen line before he goes into details about the, the line that God has chosen to work through to accomplish his purposes. As, as things branch off because of sin and God keeps moving his plans of redemption through this chosen line, frequently Moses will wrap things up with a non-chosen line. And he does that with Ishmael in, in verses 12 through 18 of Genesis 25. Prior to that, we had been tracing the record of Abraham. Abraham had this formula given him. These are generations all the way back in chapter 11, verse 27, where it's really Abraham's father that we begin tracing the line there. And it ended with Abraham's death in verse 11 here of verse, well, in the first 11 verses of 25. Now we find this Toledot formula again in verse 19 of Genesis 25, and that's where we're picking up. It introduces the section of Genesis that we'll look at over the next several months. Now, these are the records of the generation of Isaac. This section runs through chapter 35 of, of Genesis, where Isaac's death is recorded in, in the final verses of that chapter. So we'll be looking at, at chapters 25 through 35 here over the, the coming weeks and months. To, to begin this series, we will... I, I, as you can see on the screen, I've titled the series, Isaac, A Link in the Promised Chain. The, the stories that, that we look at in these chapters are, have Isaac as a backdrop. But as we'll see as we go through, really his sons are more of the focus than him. When we, we read the various stories, the, the short narratives, the sections that we have in this large section about Isaac, Isaac is just kind of a, a player in the background. His sons are, are, are the focus. This evening we'll, we'll begin our series looking at what I'm calling election in action. I, I trust by now you have your Bibles open, so look at verse 19. These are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Two times Isaac's name is mentioned here to bring our attention to him, but so is Abraham's name mentioned twice. Moses is placing the, stre the, the stress here on Isaac as Abraham's son. Abraham's promised son. We're supposed to be reading between the lines there, remembering that this is the son God promised to Abraham. Abraham is the one who received these promises from God. So the implication is that Isaac's importance really comes in the fact that he connects to Abraham. He's that link in the chain, the, the first link after Abraham. Now, 
I doubt very much that, that you remember what all we covered a year ago. But, but we ended our series on Abraham reviewing the status of, of the promises that, that God gave to Abraham. I think it might be helpful since your memory is probably better than mine, but still years long time. It might be helpful if we begin the series walking through that review of the promises again. God has laid out from the time sin entered the world that there'd be a plan of redemption. God has boiled that plan of redemption down to one person. Abraham, that through which he will work. He gave Abraham specific promises. And we find that the first statement of those promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the first layout of the promises. And over the, the coming years of Abraham's life, God added detail to those. He added specificity to them. He, he incorporated much of it into a covenant relationship he formed with Abraham. But really, we can see the, the, the kernel of all the promises laying out here, and, and there's four major elements that, that we should quickly review as we transition from Abraham to Isaac's generation. First, we, we have the, the multitude of nations. Now, in each of these, I'm going to add another verse or several verses where, where we see more detail here, Genesis 17, 4, as just mentioned there. In, in verse 2 of chapter 12, Abraham was told that God would make him a great nation. After Ishmael came along, God clarified in, in chapter 17, verse 4, that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations, not just a single nation, and Ishmael would be the source of one of those. In fact, that tracing of Ishmael's gen genealogy in the, the verses right before we're, we're, we are picking up in Genesis 25, that, that tracing seems to deliberately be there to show that God has already begun producing several nations directly from Abraham. In essence, I put a check mark by this item because we can say God has checked this item off. Abraham was promised a multitude of nations. God faithfully was delivering on that promise by, by this point in the inspired record. We, we know some of those nations at this point. The, the second thing in the promise was that there would be a land. They would possess the land. We, we would expect a, a great nation to have a location Every nation you can think of identifies with a land. You, you would not be the nation of America if we didn't have this land, right? The United States needs a place, and so does every other nation. Well, Abraham's going to be a great nation, so he needs land. I've added verses from Genesis 13 where God makes this more explicit. God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham several times. But in Genesis 13, God made that promise very concrete. He, he had Abram look with his eyes over the promised land and then told him to walk throughout the land. And everywhere where Abraham walked, God said, this will be yours. This will be your descendants. This is the land I'm promising. At Abraham's death at the beginning of chapter 25, Moses gives a, a detailed legal description of the cave where Abraham had buried his wife and where Abraham is buried, the cave he purchased from Ephraim. 
The, the record of that is back in chapter 23, but, but it's repeated in the first verses, um, actually in verses 9 and 10 of, of 25. This legal description, rather than simply telling us that Abraham was buried with Sarah, we're, we're given the exact location of the, the cave, like a, a land assessor is given the legal description. Abraham is buried in the promised land. In, in fact, he's buried in, in a portion of the promised land that the God enabled him to fully purchase outright. Through a legal transaction, he owned this land. The, the details there emphasize that, that the promise made to Abraham is certainly unfulfilled. One cave does not represent a great land for a great nation. Um, be a pretty sm- tiny nation that lived in a single cave. It is nowhere close to the whole land that Abraham walked. Still, Moses saw it as significant that in Abraham's day, God had already begun providing the fulfillment of that promise. It, it remained for the nation that, that's with Moses now, traveling through the wilderness, heading toward the, the promised land. It, it remained for them to obtain the remainder of the promise. But, but we can mark this aspect of, of God's promise as, as in process. And that's what I mean by giving it the solid box there rather than a check mark. It's in process when Abraham dies. That's the point we're coming up at here as we pick up our series. Third, we, we have the promise of a son of blessing. The, the promise of descendants from, from chapter 12 implied that Abraham needed to have at least one son. Uh, and in Genesis 17, 19, that implication is made very specific when Abraham is told that his son of blessing would come through Sarah, and that that son would be named Isaac. Of course, Isaac was born, just as God said. Yet we also know that Isaac was not the only son born. He wasn't even the firstborn. Ishmael, of course, was. We have the list of Keturah's sons, Abraham's wife, after Sarah died at the, the beginning of chapter 25. Abraham has several sons, but Moses makes sure to record here that it, everything in a way that we know that Isaac remains the son. These are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. That's to remind us this is the son, the one God had promised. So when we think about this one, we can certainly check off this component of the promises. Abraham has a son. Number four, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That was clearly stated in, in chapter 12, verse 3. That's the significant conclusion to the promises God gave Abraham. Yes, I'm selecting you as the individual through which my plan of redemption will flow, but it's for all the nations. You, you can look carefully, but, but I am not able to see any indication of, of this component of the promises anywhere in the summary verses of chapter 25 that we've seen up till now. As Abraham's life wraps to a clove, there's no indication that all the nations of the earth are starting to get blessed. Frankly, I don't think we've really seen any indication of that coming through anything recorded in the life of Abraham. Abraham has had minimal interaction with the, the nations around him. He, he's had minor interactions. He, he's seen as an important person but it's hard to see how any of that interaction has led to special blessings on the nations around him. So I mark this aspect as completely unfulfilled. 
an open circle. It hasn't been started yet. Things are in place for a chosen line to continue with Abraham's death and, and the promises that remain fulfilled. Isaac is here. But more than sufficient progress has, has been made at this point to demonstrate God's unswerving faithfulness, and yet we still have much to do. The, everything's far from fulfilled. A, a future generation, at least one, will be required be, before the nations of the earth could be blessed. That, that's the only conclusion we can have at this stage in Moses' record. Remember, he's writing for the nation of Israel, why are we here? Why is God moving us? What's he doing? How is he working in us? Of course, as, as New Testament saints, we know a lot more of the story. But we can see how God is faithfully working. That brings us finally to our verses for this evening. The, the rest of chapter 25. Verses 20 through 34 really break into two sections. Uh, both of these sections record struggles. In Verses 20 through 26, we find that the struggle over the birth. The struggle over the birth. And, and really, even in this struggle, there's a couple aspects to the struggle. Let's, let's read the verses. focuses on Isaac here, and we learn that we've jumped all the way now to Isaac being 40 years old. When Isaac was 40 years old, when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. We had that record earlier in chapter 24. Now we're reminded of that. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Here's new information because she was barren. And the Lord answered him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was sixty years old when she gave birth to them. It was September of 2021 that we looked at chapter 24, so you probably don't remember all the events around Rebecca's selection uh, as a wife for Isaac. But Moses did record the process by which Abraham sent his servant to, to look for a wife for his son, and he wanted his wife to come from Abraham's extended relatives that, that lived up in the northern lands. So his servant went there, and he found Rebecca through God's leading and brought her home to Isaac. And we're reminded this occurred now when Isaac was 40 years old. Now we discover that Sarah, or, or like Sarah rather, Rebecca was barren. Based on the age of Isaac when the twins are born, in verse 26 we know that this barrenness lasts at, at least 20 years here. Um, that's not nearly as long as Sarah's barrenness where she was 100, but it's long enough to remind us that what we learned from Abraham in, in Sarah's experience, that God's promised blessing, and his, his promise that there'd be this seed, and this promised seed, that this promise would not come through human effort. It took God to act. 
God is the one who will ensure that the promises come about. That's what we're being reminded here. It was demonstrated fully with Sarah, where it was humanly impossible for her to give birth. But again, it takes God to intervene. Isaac seems to comprehend this fundamental point because we learn here of his entreaty of God at the same time that we learn of Rebekah's barrenness. He recognizes his wife's barren and he turns immediately to God. He prays to God because she is barren. And the Lord responds to Isaac's entreaty and Rebekah conceives. So that answered prayer by God there, that ends the, the first aspect of the struggle in this section. They struggle to have a child conceived and God resolves that struggle. But now we find immediately there's a struggle within the pregnancy. There's another struggle, a, a more significant struggle, a struggle between the children. This struggle between the children, it will become a major tension through, throughout the, the narrative of Isaac. Before they're even born, the children are struggling within Rebecca's womb. Now, I know many of you women have dealt with a baby doing... The way I've heard it described feels like gymnastics in, in your womb while you're pregnant. Um, your, your baby's used your bladder as a trampoline and, and your ribs as climbing bars. I've, I've heard stories about that. It, it sounds kind of unpleasant to me. Still, I'm pretty sure whatever Rebecca experienced far exceeds those experiences. She, she recognized there, there was something unusual about what was happening in, in her womb. The, the struggle going on there... This wasn't simply two babies jostling for space. There's something else going on. And her recourse to deal with this aspect of struggle was the same as what Isaac did with the struggle that he was facing. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Rebecca inquires of the Lord about what is going on. There's something going on. And the center point of this passage really comes in the Lord's answer. Whenever the Lord speaks, we should be really zooming in on what is he saying. That's the center point here. Again, the Lord gives the reason for what's happening. He says, there's two nations in your womb. In other words, she's carrying twin sons, and both of these sons will be founders of tribes. They will both bring forth nations. Still, these tribes are not going to get along. There will be an ongoing conflict. And the elder will serve the younger. Even though they're twins, the, the one born first would be considered the elder. That in the natural order of the day, the elder would be recognized as the one who's more honored. But that's not the case here. God predicts things are going to be flipped upside down. Now, all the way back in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel, we, we saw God at time chooses to accomplish his purpose by, by choosing and, and approving the younger and the weaker uh, of the, the sons. God approved of Abel and his offering. He did not approve of Cain. Abel was the, the younger born. Other times we've seen how God's choice is based on his sovereign grace, not necessarily on the natural order of things where God chose Isaac through Sarah, not Ishmael through Hagar. Well, Rebecca is told that the God has done this again. He's chosen that he will exalt the younger child over the elder. She's also given the indication that there will be an ongoing conflict. 
this exaltation, this flipping of, of things is not going to result in, in smooth harmony. One will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. In other words, serving has that sound of conflict. It's not peaceful harmony. The, the birth record then puts an explanation point on, on what God has predicted. In, in the Hebrew, Esau is described with only nouns, very staccato-like. He, he's given nouns for a description. Just we're told about him. Where Jacob, he comes out engaged in, in action with, with verbs to describe him. The, the first baby is named based on this appearance. He's a hairy red baby. That's what we're told. The second baby is based, or named based on his action. He's grabbing the heel of his brother. His name's Jacob. So we have this struggle. Struggle over the birth. We've looked at that. Now let's jump ahead several years and read about the struggle over the birthright. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Moses skips over in the entire childhood of, of Esau and Jacob. By the time we get to verse 27 here, they're young men. Esau's grown into a man of the wild. He's a skillful hunter. By, by contrast, we're told Jacob is much more domesticated. He, he's a man of the field, a peaceful man living in tents. Even in that, Moses uses an interesting word. The, the word that, that we've translated there is peaceful. It's a word that usually means perfect, blameless, without blemish. As a noun, that's the word that's used to describe Job. Remember, Job is blameless. He's a blameless man who feared God. As an adjective, that, that word frequently is used to describe the acceptable sacrifices. Sacrifices needed to be perfect without blemish. Well, here that, that word seems to have a different meaning. Uh, neither man is really presented as, as a positive example. We wouldn't call any, either of them blameless. But Moses seems to be tipping us off by, by choosing this word that, that Jacob is in the position of, of the one who will be accepted by God, not Esau. Tensions abound throughout the, the Isaac narratives. There, there is the tension between the boys here, and we get a hint of how this is tension is fed by this underlying tension between the parents. Each parent shows favoritism to, to a different son. And all of this clearly threatens to, to divide the family, and it will factor in more fully in coming episodes. But even from the beginning, we're, we're told that, that Isaac is presented as one who makes his choice based on physical senses and, and he, because he loves the taste of, of Esau's game. 
We're not told why Rebecca favors Jacob, but we're left to wonder if Rebecca is making her choice based on what she remembers of, of God's message prior to their birth. All we're told is they have different favorites. And Esau chooses based on his love of food. Or Isaac, rather. Anyway, we, we get this fateful day. This day arrives when, when Esau returns home famished, apparently after a fruitless hunt, since he's not grilling up his meat. Jacob has prepared a stew, and that stew smelled awfully good to, to Esau. The narrative never comes right out and states as much, but there's several hints in the way things are presented that, that this may have been a presumptuous act on, on Jacob's part. He was anticipating that his brother might come home gameless. So he, he's using this stew here to bait a trap that he set for his brother. If that's the case, if, if that's what the hints are really there to help us see, Esau certainly takes the bait. He falls right into Jacob's trap, even though he's the one known for his hunt. He takes the bait and he, he asks for a swallow of that red stuff. Remember, Esau was red when he was born. Now he wants red stuff. Moses is having a little fun here with word plays. As he records, this is why he's called Edom, which in Hebrew has a very similar sound to red stuff. Moses playing that, and he's, he's given the backstory why Edom is not the, the nation that, that Israel can, can lean on. He, what he's telling the nation really in this little verse is that Edomites are just like their ancestor. They're impulsive, they're profane, they are not fit allies. Just like Esau who wants this red stuff. Esau's taken the bait, so Joseph springs, or Jacob rather, springs the trap. First, sell me your birthright. Trade. Stew for your birthright. That's the deal. Clearly, the birthright was Jacob's interest all along. Equally clear, Esau had no interest in his birthright. Now, most likely, the birthright represents that priority of inheritance. Remember I said that the elder son was considered the one who was more honored at that time. And, and he'd be the one that would carry the family name. The family line would pass through the elder with the birthright. Most likely he'd receive a greater portion of the inheritance. Maybe a double portion as we see in some places. He'd get the prime land, the prime livestock, the prime flocks. He was the one honored. That's what Jacob is asking Esau to give him. And Esau agrees to the condition that, that Jacob's placed on the bowl of, bowl of stew. He agrees, he eats, he drinks, he gets up, and he goes on his way. It may seem like that's needless information, but Moses is making the point here. He obviously is not dying of hunger. He's got plenty of strength to eat, and they don't have to spoon the, the food into his mouth and, and, and nurse him back to health. He's got plenty of strength to eat and then storm out of the tent. The point of the event is explicitly stated. Esau despised his birthright. He, he treated his birthright as something that was worthless, something of less value to him than, than a bowl of stew. The narrative does not give us any moral judgments on Jacob's actions, but it 
explicitly casts negative light on Esau, extremely negative light. He despised his birthright. That is a strong word. So we've looked at the struggles over the birth. We've looked at the struggle over the birthright. Now we need to ask ourselves, what lesson can we learn from, from these really brief episodes? There, there's not a whole lot here as we start the Isaac narratives. It's rather quick. Moses has selected these two narratives, one right from the birth of the twins and then this one when they're young men. He, he certainly did not select these events by accident. He's under inspiration. What is being taught through these? Well, I would word the lesson this way. What's being taught? The lesson that I would see us have tonight is that divine election utilizes human desires to accomplish God's sovereign will. Divine election utilizes human desires to accomplish God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is clearly that his promises will flow through Jacob. It will come from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That, that's his will. He, he announced that, indicated it, even with what he told Rebecca, that the younger would serve the older. He's the favored one. Moses has shown us enough at this point that, that we know that, that Jacob is the one that God is putting his interest in. That's where the focus is. Plus, I expect most of us here tonight know the rest of the story, at least to some level. We know that the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the twelve. The promises go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That's God's sovereign will. We also know that they go to Jacob rather than Esau because God elected Jacob. We saw that election laid out in the, the message God gave to Rebekah. But Paul uses this example in the New Testament. When Paul is teaching us about divine election in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Paul points back to this very case and says, when, be, Though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of he who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Paul makes it clear for us, God's divine election had nothing to do with any work that they've accomplished, any deeds they've done, any even aspect of their being. They're not born yet. But God has chosen Jacob. God chose Jacob just because God chose Jacob. That's the point Paul makes clear using this example. There, there's nothing in Jacob that made him choice-worthy. He, he wasn't even born when God declared who he'd chosen. Yet, the point of the second aspect of the story, that the first episode that Moses gives us is God chose Jacob. But the second episode, the reason we're tied in the second one is, is that Moses wants to see there's nothing about God's choice that runs contrary to the wishes of either of the two boys. Jacob wanted the birthright. Esau despised the birthright. This was such a strong such a, a sinful view that, that the author of Hebrews uses this event in, in Hebrews twelve sixteen uh, as the ultimate contrast. The author of Hebrews is setting up a con contrasting the, the heathen, the pagans, the, the ungodly from the hall of faith of chapter 11, the, the righteous. In, in, in verse 16 of chapter 12, the verb comes from verse 15, see to it 
the author says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Surely by the time they were adults, both Esau and Jacob knew about God's promise that he had made to their grandfather Abraham. I'm, I'm, I have to guess at this. We don't have recorded, but I cannot imagine that, that the tradition hasn't been passed down, that God promised your grandfather these things. Isaac now has that promise to him. They, they certainly knew that, that Isaac was the chosen recipient of God's promises. To despise his birthright means that Esau has no regard for what God has promised. That's why the commentator of, uh, in Hebrews, not the commentator, but the author of Hebrews, can make a commentary on this saying this is what an immoral and a, a, a godless person does. Esau is godless. One commentator stated that there, there, there is no injustice dealt to Esau. He got what he wanted. Yet Moses wants to make sure that we understand that through his actions, he is condemned in the justice system of God. He was godless. He despised what was worth great amount because God's promises were attached to the birthright. And that's when we put these two episodes together, we see that divine election, it accomplishes God's sovereign will without fail. God elects for the, his own good purpose. But God uses human desires. Divine election utilizes human desires to accomplish God's sovereign will. This is that mystery I spoke of at the beginning. God will accomplish his sovereign will. He'll, he'll do that through divine election. Yet in the process, he utilizes human desires, and that leaves us responsible for how we act on our desires. Now, there are a lot more for us to learn, many more things for us to learn from the Isaac narratives in the coming chapters, but, but this will suffice for tonight. The divine election utilizes human desires to accomplish God's sovereign will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. These things that you've recorded for us so that we can understand you more fully that we can know you more fully and, and see how you do operate, recognizing that in your infinite wisdom you have left us morally responsible for our choices. Father, I pray that we will learn from what we see tonight, not be like Esau, to be, be like jo Jacob in the sense that we value that which is promised by you. May we be faithful and seek to serve you in all things. Seek to tell others about your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.